0: Hello,
1: I'm Father Mitch Pacwa, and welcome to EWTN Live, where we bring you guests from around the world. And speaking of the world, we have a lot of problems. One of them is the war between Russia and Ukraine. It continues, and as it does go on, it threatens a wider conflict in Europe. It could involve world superpowers. WITH RISKS OF BECOMING A NUCLEAR WAR. SO WE NEED TO DISCUSS THE CHRISTIAN APPROACH TO WAR AND CATHOLIC PARTICIPATION IN IT. WE'LL ASK THE QUESTION, WHEN, IF EVER, CAN WAR BE CONSIDERED JUST? BEFORE WE GET TO THAT, HOWEVER, We want to talk briefly with EWTN's Peter Gagnon about some special events and programs that are coming up. Peter, what do you have for us?
0: Well, uh, beginning on Sunday, there's a, a big event. The Holy Father is going to Canada oh, in, a, nice. in a, a very important visit. Um, it's been much anticipated. And um, so EWTN is going to be bringing you full coverage of that. We're going to have on-the-ground coverage. So we'll have Kevin Dunn and Father Raymond D'Souza will be there in Canada mm-hmm. um, kind of wrapping the events, giving um, perspective and context to all the different um, events the Holy Father is going to um, three different locations. And um, it's really going to be a very pastoral visit. And so uh, people can tune into that and watch that coverage. Oh, and um, they can find that on our, our website, Good. all the different times, because there's a number of different events. Sure. And then um, Sunday also is, um, you know, the Holy Father has named it the World Day of, of uh, Grandparents and the Elderly for the Feast of Joachim and Anne. Sure. And uh, so we have a special Saving Our Faith um, where Father um, Leo Pedaling Hug cooks meals, you know, geared towards your grandparents. So we tune into that program. It airs at 4.30 on... Um, on Sunday, and you can, you know, do something for your grandparents, you know, and th- that's mm. a whole idea is to honor them and the importance that they um, do in the lives of their grandchildren. So. I JUST WORRY
1: ABOUT WHAT THESE YOUNG PEOPLE MIGHT THINK THAT WE OLDER FOLKS NEED. I'M A yes. GRANDPA, AGE, <laughs> WHAT ARE THEY yeah. GOING TO CHEW IT FOR US AHEAD OF TIME yeah. OR what? Well, YOU'RE STILL EATING THAT, Puree that, it? that ELK <laughs> AND
0: THAT DEER, SO YOU'RE you're, you're FINE, okay. YOU'RE FINE. AND THEN FINALLY ON AUGUST 2ND, WE'RE GOING TO BRING uh, FULL COVERAGE OF THE KNIGHTS OF COLUMBUS SUPREME CONVENTION. SO um, IN THAT EVENT, IT HIGHLIGHTS ALL THE GREAT WORK THE KNIGHTS ARE DOING. Mm-hmm. THERE'S a, a MASS, THE um, the OPENING SESSION WITH THE SUPREME Knight SPEECH AND THEN THE final the States dinner that night. Mm-hmm. So we'll have guests throughout the day. Uh, you know, Doug Keck will be hosting that mm-hmm. with, with uh, Jonathan Reyes from the Knights of Columbus. And um, we'll air special programs as well, showing all the good work the the Knights are doing. So, okay. uh, And where is that going to be held? It, this year it's in Nashville, Tennessee. Oh, So it goes to a different always. city each year. Yeah. So this year it's in Nashville. And so coverage begins um, uh, that, uh, at 10 a.m. Eastern. On, on August 2nd, um, and then we'll have Masses on August 3rd and 4th as well, So, but cool. the full convention is on the 2nd. So those are three things you can look forward to, and uh, go to EWTN.com for all the different uh, programming schedules and other specials that we have airing in the next couple of weeks. Okay,
1: great. Thank you, Peter. Appreciate nice. that. <clears throat> we'll be back in just a couple of minutes with tonight's guest, so please stay with us. Welcome back. Now, we have to take a look at a harsh reality of life. Our Lord Jesus Christ looked at it straight in the eyes, and even though He lived at a time of peace known as the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, He said in Matthew 24, verse 6, that there would be wars. AND RUMORS OF WARS. SO WE KNOW, FIGHTING AND MILITARY CONFLICT IS A VERY TRAGIC RESULT OF OUR FALLEN CONDITION AS HUMAN BEINGS. AND FOR THE LAST SEVERAL MONTHS, WE'VE BEEN SEEING THAT PLAY OUT IN THE NEWS AND IN THE HEADLINES dealing WITH FIGHTING BETWEEN RUSSIA AND UKRAINE one of the most serious wars in Europe since the conflict in the former Yugoslavia. We've also seen world leaders walk a very fine line between doing what they can to help without risking a broadening of the conflict, because some of them are aware that it could develop into a world war. WITH THE POTENTIAL USE OF NUCLEAR WEAPONS. SO TONIGHT, WE WANT TO ADDRESS THE BROADER QUESTIONS OF WHEN IS WAR JUST? WHAT SHOULD BE THE CHRISTIAN APPROACH TO WAR? AND SHOULD CATHOLICS PARTICIPATE IN WAR? JOINING US TONIGHT, to try to make sense of all this, is a professor of philosophy and moral theology at the Byzantine Catholic Seminary in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Please welcome Dr. Matthew Minard. Dr. Minard,
2: welcome. Hello. Uh, it's nice to be here. Thank you very much, Father Mitch, for having and
1: me. And the, the patron of your seminary are Saints uh, Cyril Methodius, correct? Mm-hmm. Correct. Great, yep. Great. And you how long have you been teaching
2: there? So it's uh, coming up on my fifth year uh, that I've been there. Good for you. Yeah.
1: All right. Well I hope you enjoy it, but I hope your students enjoy it even more.
2: <laughs> well, uh, you know, I look at the what those course evaluations at the end of each each year, and you see <laughs> <Yeah. clears throat> how much that holds. But no, it's a real it's a real blessing to uh, to teach for the primarily the Ruthenian Catholic Church and the Melkite Catholic Church, mm-hmm. and then we catch some of the the edge cases. Sometimes Ukrainian uh, deacons who need priestly formation, sure. you know, who are going to be ordained uh, priests after some years of the service surface, will come to us as well. Okay uh, Romanians too. the Romanians, as you know, are very small here in the United States, but right. we occasionally get someone from there.
1: Yes. So. Great. Well, great, great work. Uh, it's, it's an important important area. Now you teach philosophy and ethics, correct?
2: Correct. Yeah. yeah. We don't have we don't have quite as much philosophy in, in the Eastern all the Eastern programs just because we have some latitude there. Yeah. Um, and so I teach some of the introductory philosophy courses, and then I teach our moral theology sequence. So general moral theology, Catholic social teaching, and then you know bioethics and sexual ethics. Good. Well,
1: in this realm, we we, uh, we want to deal with this issue of war. Um, in, in one sense, the uh, it's very important that you're at a, a Byzantine seminary because the Byzantine Catholics and the other Eastern Orthodox communities of Russia, Ukraine, and throughout Eastern Europe, Romania, uh, the former Czechoslovakia, now Slovakia, all these places have experienced the absolute horrors of war and persecution. This is uh, very much part of that community, and that would be true of the Oriental Christian communities as well, the uh, uh, Melkites, uh, who are from Palestine and uh, uh, Lebanon, as and Israel, as well as uh, other countries in the Middle East, plus the Chaldeans in uh, uh, Iraq, and the Assyrian Orthodox in Iraq. And the Maronites in Lebanon, all of these different communities have experienced war a bit more directly than we have. We have, we send troops over there. They live in war zones mm-hmm. and suffer through it. So this is, this is a very lively issue for the Eastern Church, but it affects the, the West very deeply as well. So would you explain, first of all, what the church teaches is a just
2: war? What, what is the theory and where does it come from? Sure. So this is good to maybe just level set so that we make sure that we understand, like you said, what the, the church herself teaches on this matter. Mm-hmm. When it comes to a topic like war, right, we're already kind of confronted with an issue that, well, faces humans after the fall. Right? Mm-hmm. So it already is kind of in a context of how do we respond to the sinful conditions of reality, right? It's different mm. than, you know, love of God above all else, you know, with supernatural love through charity. I mean, this is something that will remain in heaven, right? But wars and, and rumors of wars are the sad effect of living in a, in a fallen world. Yes. And although the early church, and maybe we'll talk about this or not, depending on where our conversation goes, right? The early church had to grapple with a number of these questions about how Christians relate to the social order. You know, St. Paul from very early on, and even in his own way, our Lord, but St. Paul very clearly, right? Says that, you know, the Christian should, you know, so long as one doesn't compromise, uh, you know, ultimately their, their faith in, in God to recognize the rulers, right? Mm-hmm. But on the whole, you know, Christians were living in a subordinate situation and so the question of how Christians in the political order should influence you know, any imperial policy, let alone questions of war, is sort of you know, not a, a direct question. It was more like how do Christians who could go into service uh, find themselves you know, called to still follow Christ in the midst of what might be required of them by the empire?
1: And, so, and might I but, add, yeah. could add something in there. That was the same problem for the Jewish community. Mm-hmm. They In that period of, the, you know, before Christianity and in the Christian era, Jewish people had great problems of conscience because all the ancient armies depended on worshiping other gods mm-hmm. and they could yeah. not participate in that. So these were... These were yeah, a wide they, variety of issues, correct, and, yeah, in, in and significant did
2: for believers, yeah, and it hit, and they hit rather deep. I mean, it wasn't just as though it was a superficial sort of a side issue. How do you deal with sort of the the paganization of the army? So I don't want to dismiss it at all. But the the style of question becomes very different after the Constantinian era, right? When all of a sudden you're faced with what will later come to be called, you know, the indirect authority of the church over political matters. But how does the church really find herself? Uh, preaching and um, morally judging the actions of, of states in a way that she didn't early on directly. She was doing it, of course, right? You, you couldn't be, Christians have always had this kind of eschatological stance, judging time, judging the world, but it takes on a new a new kind of, uh, you know, uh, cast, a new kind of color after that period.
1: Yeah, that's where people like yeah. St. John Chrysostom, as Patriarch mm-hmm. of Constantinople, would criticize the government mm-hmm. And government leaders he'd get exiled yeah. for doing yeah. <laughs> so, but he would make the criticism, same with Saint. Athanasius and mm-hmm. others of the great Eastern fathers. they were very critical
2: of immorality as they saw it that could never happen prior. yeah, exactly it just wouldn't be it's not the same platform, I guess one could say. Yeah. Um, but then, from the time of you know around you know Saint Augustine, fourth century onward, you start to find crystallizing in the West a theory that then, really, in the medieval period, takes on its form in the Latin Church. That's kind of co- not codified, but kind of um, is on its surest foundation of the idea of a just war. Now, okay, let's before we consider the conditions for a just war, I think it's important just to ask the question about well, why are we even talking about you know a just for, right? Why, why are we kind of concerned even with sticking that ad- adjective, just, on the front of it? Well, um, you know, kind of a parallel case is, you know, the, that of like self-defense. When you think of someone who's defending their family, which is the easiest thing, I think, to, to use here as an example, not necessarily themselves, but others who might be, you know, incredibly vulnerable, you know, we, uh, Catholic doctrine has never taught that justified use of force, Uh, is morally evil and that self-defense is a kind of exception case, right? It's actually an act of a sort of justice to defend others, even in your private life. Mm -hmm. Now, there are quite significant differences when you get to all the complexity of a society, but the church, you know, from relatively early on, realized that her moral vocabulary had to have sort of a box to put in, not merely that a war was evil but accepted, but might even, in certain conditions, be the just act that should be done, and that it would be an injustice not to defend the goods, the common good of a given nation. Yeah. But of course, as we know, you know, we already made the point: we live in a fallen world. So all too readily, nations' leaders, and even you know, in more democratic societies, nations' people will look to justify, you know, um, a war on what would actually be unjust terms. So. Let's first consider sort of the form it takes in St. Thomas Aquinas, just because it's the classical text to consider here. Mm -hmm. And then we'll think of how the catechism today presents it with, I think, some, you know, important nuances that are necessary given all the difficulties of international relations today, Mm -hmm. right? The the, the concept of, you know, or the scenarios of a, a justified warfare were much more localized. Uh, even if it was, you know, between large geographic areas in Europe in the 13th century, than it is now. But let's first think there. So Saint Thomas Aquinas, in his Summa Theologiae, uh, which is, you know, he writes this textbook. The, the poor theology students. He feels like things aren't organized enough when he's teaching and sort of their way of teaching at that period in the medieval West. And so he, he breaks down the Summa Theologiae across multiple volumes where he treats of God and creation and moral matters, and then Christ as the, the means by which we return to God. Mm-hmm. And in the midst of the second part of the second part of that, right, which is where he goes through all the virtues uh, in their detail, in their specificity, it's kind of surprising, where does he discuss war? And he, you would expect that it would be just war would be in the treatise on justice. Treatise on justice is this long, really, you know, uh, detailed treatment of all the various relationships we have with others and with institutions um, and how we should parse that morally. But he actually deals with the question of war in charity. And I think this is so indicative to the place in his, his heart, because what's he asking the question as? Is, is it contrary to the supernatural love of God that we receive through grace to engage in war. right? That the, the disciple of Christ who has taken very seriously the Beatitudes, the blessed are the peacemakers, is going to immediately be confronted with a question that still haunts souls today. How can I reconcile the precepts of charity, one might say, but we should really say too, the theological virtue of charity, with warfare? and it's in in that context that he asked the question you know is it always sinful to go to war basically mm-hmm. and in in that in that context he, he reiterates what had developed you know a lot in the west uh, he doesn't take certain little eastern nuances into account certain canonical things they did differently in the east but really it's a universal teaching and sense of the church of that era that warfare of itself under certain conditions is is even justified and is not um, is not an evil. And I think that's very important to to remember that that, you know, it's it's actually a, a just action, although a tragic action as well. And in that in that context, he lays out three conditions that are necessary. First one's very kind of commonsensical, that it has to be declared by civil authority. Right? Now this is maybe one way to to differentiate the case of self defense. Mm-hmm. Right? Self defense falls, you know, really, you know, in in some of the, in sort of the normal places where it occurs to individuals. You know, it would, would it be great, I guess, if every single time we had to defend ourselves, there was a cop over our shoulder, that would probably be problematic, you know, it'd be hard to do that, right? Yeah, impossible. Self, self-defense, exactly. And it probably would actually cause problems because you'd have a surveillance state. Um, so self-defense, that's why I was kind of stumbling over my words a little bit. Self-defense you know, in a sense falls to kind of personal morality in a way that declaring war doesn't. You have to have a legitimate state power. It wouldn't even be state at that time, right? The states, that's kind of a modern category, right? But the legitimate political authority who can declare something about the relationship between this nation or this people and another. Okay, so we're kind of just, we're in a political context is the first bet. Okay. So it's not private citizens who do this, okay. right? Right. That's, okay. So that's
1: the first. So, so that's exactly. uh, uh, you know the state doing this, and yep. uh, and then uh, I I want to make sure that we get to you know the, these these issues that it has to be a just cause, has to be proportional, that's, and those, that's the you next have step. to have probability of success. That's uh, it. At, so, yeah, as so well as competent authority <laughs> and it has to be a last resort. <laughs> Let's go into
2: those in okay. detail. Oh, okay sorry father i just you know this is the professor i like to kind of start in the general and, right. and kind of work my way down right. that's fine so you laid out the next two i'm sorry i just like you know i'm kind of wanting to make sure we kind of appreciate each step but so there has to be then between two peoples some proportionate event that calls for the defense of that people right a significant threat to the to the existence and well-being of of that mm-hmm. people and also two, the nation who has been aggressed who has been harmed you know they they can't be using this as an occasion to unjustly sort of get back at an enemy from the past right they too must be aiming at only redressing the evil in question mm-hmm. so this is why i think now yes. it comes to the point you were getting at is you know the, the contemporary catechism i think is is a little better you know far be it for me to say something better than saint thomas but it is a universal text right yeah. and it it goes into these details just with a little bit more nuance right in in the catechism you know the conditions are sort of expanded out the the damage that would be inflicted by the aggressor must be you know in some way lasting grave and certain mm-hmm. so let's presume you know that there was something done you know let's just you know considering the current state of affairs with you know russia or any state power that they you know cut back their oil production or something like that right that's not a necessarily a, a grave and lasting scenario there are all sorts of ways to address that even, if, even without even engaging with those nations. There are other oil markets, there are all sorts of like other things on the table that this does not by itself um, endanger the existence of a given nation, right? right? Especially the United States in, yeah. in our case, the United States quite clearly. Also too, and this is very important actually, all other means for, for redressing the wrong need to have been shown to be impractical or ineffective. Right, So the, the church in her wisdom kind of developing out of the modern period and continued discussions about just war, and then the growing international order realizes that, that things like sanctions um, and other diplomatic maneuvers should always be taken first in, uh, in relation to the nation in question, in order to minimize you know, the, the possibility of rushing into a war they could be avoided by other means. This is why it's very important actually to have well trained diplomats. You know, we, we sort of live in an, an era where people question elites, but it's it's necessary to have well experienced diplomats who understand international relations to know how you can turn the levers of, of you know national relationships in order to, to pressure mm-hmm. a power uh, to to step back from from the brink. So it's very important. It also shows the importance of the international order. You know, there there are reasons to be frustrated sometimes with the, the UN. Um, someone once said, it, and a very balanced political commentator actually he says, he, he gets vexed and it, it feels like the bar scene of Star Wars sometimes, because everybody's at the table, right? So you, you sort of wonder, why is it not just the Democratic League? But still, it's of use to have an international place where things can be addressed, merely so you have room in which disputes have something other than force of arms as their first step. And, and,
1: and yep. also the, the uh, uh, international court in the Hague can yes. be another place where these things are addressed if nations will accept, you know, some sort of legal, uh, you
2: know, justification and legal, you know, working through the problem exactly and here in the united states there's a certain vein and among especially maybe more conservative vein in the united states kind of questioning of the this international order but you know from the time of the beginning of the the modern nation states this problem of the the law among nations became more and more pressing right especially as christendom fell apart and you didn't have really an arbiter in between the states right states as such need to to be able to relate to each other Yes. Sometimes Thomas Ha, Hob- or well, Thomas Hobbes probably made this remark too, actually. But you find it in John Locke, the political philosopher who was in- of influence on America. Nations by themselves are sort of in what they call a state of nature. They have no relationship with each other, and according to Thomas Hobbes, they would all be at war with each other. Well, that's perhaps a bit grim. But states that don't have a court, that don't have a, a body that they can at least somewhat enter into the world of discussion and debate in very much are at risk of just seeing each other as aggressors, right? They become islands when, in fact, nations do interrelate immensely, right? The international order is so intertwined, as we've learned over the past two years, because of everything with COVID, you all of a sudden realize all the various ways that nations have been interrelated, and they need to have a legal framework and also a political framework. This is one of the reasons why the church has always remained so involved with the UN right it's not merely a, Euro- a european bureaucratic thing for them to do it's it's you know keen sense that the church's moral authority has to speak among the nations as a whole so you need the point so all of this is to say you need a place where you can work out all the various other levers of international relations that could prevent war and you need to have a a prudently informed sense. It requires a great deal of virtue in our leaders. This is something we should appreciate that and ask and demand from our leaders that they can weigh out then when it becomes impractical and ineffective. Mm-hmm. Right? Okay. Um, so that's, so that's yeah. another element. Now, exactly. Now, also, too, I mean, there has to be some uh, serious prospect of success. Yes. Precisely because it would be unjust to your own nation if you went to war with another power and you know effectively led to the obliteration of your own nation right, right? There, if you've got no prospect of success i mean it's it would actually be kind of a, a sin against the common good of that nation right right so up to this point think about that too that means you know you could be justified in going into war and you you shouldn't go into war if you have no prospect it could be you know not merely a question of some tiny little country you know if switzerland decided to not be neutral and to go to war right um, it's not just a question of them not being able to defend themselves. But you know, it could just be a war that's protracted and endless because of the nature of the conflict, right? You yep. just are aware that a war with you know China would be this disastrously unending thing that would never really come to a success. So mm-hmm. hence, you should not engage in a war like that, where there really is no chance of, of a kind of outcome, where the nations can once again, enter something like a semi just order among each mm-hmm. other. So mm-hmm. you need that. Yep. yep. So that's no. a, a way to critique certain wars that, you know, really, you know, otherwise might have even been justified. But, but in the end, you'd have no real sure outcome. You know, that's a, a criterion to keep in mind. Um, and and that, yeah. that
1: would apply to uh, a number of situations during World War II in various ways. For instance, when Poland was invaded by the Germans, mm-hmm. they fought. But then when Russia invaded them, the Soviet Union, I should say, invaded them from the east at the same time, they had to pitch that. There was no way to defend against two great powers, yeah, whereas the United States could take on the Empire of Japan after mm-hmm. Pearl Harbor. And so there was a very good chance that we could defeat the Empire of Japan after, mm-hmm. uh, after Pearl Harbor and as well as defeat Germany when they declared war on us after Pearl Harbor. So the, the, those are two different circumstances. We could defeat these other nations, but Poland could not defeat two nations coming in at once. So you have to capitulate
2: at that yeah, point. Yeah, it would have led to the end in the non-existence of, of the Polish people. Exactly. Right, they would have been fully Russified or something right. by the end of that. Um, and then the, the final, which is really the most touchy, and you know, this is where I think in, in kind of commentary online, people are all too ready to maybe say more than they know. And I'm saying that I, this is why I hold my tongue. Namely, you know, the arms that are used in a war should not, however, ultimately, A, actually target uh, indiscriminately civilians. This is a huge difference in modern warfare. And also too, should not cause such immense evils and damage to the the na- even to the nation that was unjustly starting the starting a mm-hmm. conflict, you should not cause such damage to them that they cannot re-enter the you know community of nations at the end, mm-hmm. right? And and the you know especially one thinks of of course you know uh, nuclear weapons to this end, but one might think even you know um, to the effects of you know chemical warfare um, and biological warfare as well. I mean the mm-hmm. immense think about once again after experiencing you know. The pandemic that, in a sense, was you know could have been immensely worse had it been you know airborne Ebola that Mm -hmm. was made in some lab in China or wherever, right? Mm -hmm. That would be used. Um, The evils that would be visited by a weapon like that would be completely unjustified because of their immense scope and the way that they basically destroy the international order thereafter. Um, Now, why I said you know I think one has to be careful here is you know I I feel. a kind of knee-jerk defensiveness on behalf of some of our folks in the the armed services, because you know th- there are a lot of weapons that we deploy which are very targeted nowadays, especially yes, in the first. Yes. World. And I think we shouldn't act as though you know American forces are just sort of on dark ops killing families, you know as you know or indiscriminately at war whenever you know in the Middle East. We're actually quite um, you know quite targeted in our abilities as well. Mm-hmm. So there are some aspects of modern warfare which might be even, you know, a little bit more targeted than we could ever have been in the past, right? Especially the drone warfare. Um, but just as much, though, as well, there there is the the large scale warfare which was impossible before the time of like World War One, right? World War One shocked the European mind for so many reasons, but one of which was that experience of just the death in the in the fields at, at the hand of Gatling guns and and then you know the bombing. Well,
1: so. they, they didn't have Gatling guns. They had actual machine oh. guns. Oh, sorry, machine guns. I'm sorry. Remember. The Civil War is where yeah, the yeah. Gatling gun was introduced yeah. with large numbers of deaths. And, yeah. and, and throughout, it's interesting that the number of people who died in the four years of the American Civil War was larger than the number of people who died in the 250 years of the Crusades. Mm-hmm. That, I think that that's a, a, an important uh, element because, again, in World War, th- this is from the Committee of the Red Cross, in World mm-hmm. War I that there were nine soldiers killed for every civilian that died by accident. Mm-hmm. or. You know, it's collateral mm-hmm. damage, as they call it. Mm-hmm. Whereas in today's wars, it's 10 civilians die for every soldier. Mm-hmm. And this is a, a, a big reversal. And even if their numbers are slightly off, it's pretty close to to the issue. Yeah. In World War II, uh, 50 to 55 million people died. So just between World War One. In World War II, it was twice, more than twice as many died in World War II. And most of them were civilians, not soldiers. Mm. So this is, you know, the the kind of question that we have to deal with uh, in the, you know, the the questions about what makes a war just. Now, if you don't mind, Dr. Minard, we need to take a break. We'll come back and continue on this discussion, so we ask all of our audience to please stay with us in this regard. We are speaking with Dr. Matthew Minard about just war. When is a war just? And how do you wage a war justly? And the question also, especially in the modern world, is the just war theory something that is used to restrict war? Or does it get used to give you permission to go to war? This is a question, uh, if you, if, I would urge our audience to read Livy and his history of ancient Rome. And what you see there is that Rome was at war Every year but two or three from its founding in the 750s BC all the way until the time of Caesar Augustus. And they always justified, they were very concerned to justify their wars. Livy lays out the justifications, but they were always giving themselves permission to be justly at war and this, this is a problem, is it not? So is the just war theory something that limits war, or does it simply get used to give
2: permission? Yeah, no, this is a very good question, and it forces the professor to be direct, right? Yes. Yeah, that one should always think, I mean, especially, right, we're talking about just war not merely in a, a philosophical sense, let alone a pagan sense, but a Christian sense, should always see this as being uh, a doctrine that looks to limit, the, the times when war would be justified mm-hmm. by a given nation. And if you think about the, the way our discussion went last time, as we looked at each of those conditions, you start to realize actually how rare warfare should be yes. in, in a truly just and Christian order. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you know, our Lord did desire peace and yes, you know, the world will have wars, but really in the end, just war theory is not meant to be a kind of a halo placed yes. over the evil of warfare it's very important to take into account that fact you know
1: yeah there's a philosophy professor uh named carl Figarota, who was a professor of philosophy at the air force academy in colorado springs and he wrote a book uh Kentian thinking about military ethics it, it Has to use secular ethics rather than yeah. thomas aquinas but he wrote this the just war framework is extraordinarily flexible in what it can seem to justify. The framework and its language are particularly amenable to abuse. It does not so much reduce the incidence of war, but likely makes it more common and, moreover, seemingly morally acceptable. Uh, which is exactly what Livy did mm-hmm. in all the Roman wars by which they conquered Italy and the world. They always looked for the justification, but they ended up
2: conquering the whole Mediterranean world as a result. Yeah, well, this, you know, to understand it within its context in Augustine and, and someone like Thomas Aquinas, it basically has to be incorporated into the overall framework of a virtuous life lived as a leader and yes. as citizens, yes. right, without seeing that, you know, ultimately, all these little nuances, you know, the virtue of prudence is actually incredibly important, very, very important uh, for understanding what a well formed conscience is. And, you know, Christian doctrine and the church herself requires of the leaders of state, that they themselves have, you know, the virtue of a, a really, a, we would even say a Christianized conscience, really, mm-hmm. to really be able to discern, you know, what is befitting to the common moral good of your nation as a member of the nations of the world. Mm-hmm. And it's of course all too ready all too readily though, right? We we all use moral rules to try and find a way to justify our our actions. You know, if we if I guess if we wanted to throw every moral rule overboard because it's misapplied and used for self-justification, all of us who go to confession regularly enough know quite well how often we do that with almost every moral rule when we yeah. sin. We yes. convince ourselves that we're doing something that's, you know, acceptable. Um, but it is a real, it's a real risk, because left by itself, it can turn into a kind of tool where you basically have your four boxes from the Catechism, you try to just put your data into them and justify your conflict. But it's meant to be limiting in the way that we tried to present how difficult it is to hit each of those bars, especially with an international order existing, where there are many other levers. And one of the difficulties
1: for all sides in most wars is the role of propaganda. That propaganda by Goebbels, for instance, during World War II made Poland into the villain in the eyes of the German people, but they also made the Czechoslovakians into villains and everybody else into villains because they just came up with they were willing to lie through their teeth in order to do that. Mm-hmm. And propagandists of on many sides, if not to say all sides, are not only tempted to falsify information, but they actually do so. And by giving false information, instigate wars. And that's not just World War II. It goes on to the present. This is something that we have to have a press that examines everything so that citizens can know actual facts and not
2: propaganda yeah, this is a, a standing issue, and you know the the continued cynicism that the American people feel toward the media, you know bears out the problem because so much in the way of the factual domain, I mean, in our own nation, let alone when you then start spreading mm-hmm. out all over the entire globe, is always filtered, it feels, like through a political prism, mm-hmm. whichever side, you know, is is sort of wished to be favored by the news outlet. Um, and you know this this is important because especially in a democratic nation, you know we we do exercise the the choice and and influence over our our leaders, and so an uninformed populace um you know is is not only a dangerous thing but beca- can become the agent of the immorality in the the international scene. This is why Absolutely. we should de- i mean I don't know what to say, but we should demand more from from our media, but this is uh, if anything things get worse because of the world online yeah. um, yeah, self selection yeah. it's just it is worse um so it's, it's a troubling time, actually, in that regard.
1: Yes. You know, this is, you know, you see news agencies being very partisan and reporting on some things and not reporting on others based on partisan decisions, and that's on both sides. Uh, and plus, mm-hmm. the other side, you know, there are multiple mm-hmm. sides now on the Internet. Um, so that's, that's a major problem. And this is... Uh, you know, uh, where it's it's very difficult for citizens to know facts. Uh, Mr. Putin puts out propaganda, but so do the Ukrainians. And, you know, what, where is, you know, being far away from the truth makes it very difficult to know what the issues are. That happens in all these conflicts in the Middle East as well. Propaganda is done sometimes well, sometimes poorly, but it's done on all sides. And so this is something that is, um, uh, again, aided and embedded by an Internet that is as available for propaganda purposes to terrorists as it is to theologians seeking truth um, and everybody in between. So this is another issue, and we have to be extra careful in democracies to know as much as we can. Another issue I want to bring, and you started to mention it, um, that's the issue of the after effect of a war. Even if a war is just, we cannot avoid the issue of the trauma of seeing somebody killed on your own side, friends and such. The bond among soldiers is a very important bond. And seeing their friends killed is one trauma, but then also killing somebody, even if it's an enemy trying to kill you, that has great trauma. And this week, I grew up, In the 1950s, nearly every man I knew had been a veteran of World War II, generally considered a just war, but they were still traumatized and they didn't have ways to talk about it. And today, I think it's even more difficult for veterans than it was for the World War II veterans. How do we address yeah. the moral injury that takes place even in a
2: just war, yet you on know, an unjust yeah. war? Yeah. The the most just war discussions uh, tend to go around what used to be called jus ad war, the right to go to war. Once right. again, the right. limitations on the right to go to war, really is the best way to understand it. But there's also the idea of jus in bello, what is the just action in in a war, right? Yes. And let's just presume, let's presume because it's a good example that World War II generation. Men who were just in Bellow, in war, right? Let's just presume you, you, you did everything you could to not cause collateral damage, et cetera, but you've been involved in the destruction of sections of cities or, you know, just the killing of soldiers whom you know have families. There are other humans and you have the effect of just having been on the edge to prepare to kill and have had to kill. Um, you have a sense whenever, you know, you come home, like you said, you know, only people who understand me are fellow soldiers, which is quite true, actually. That's why there's such a a brotherhood, because you've not been there is something that many soldiers can say. In the early church, and I'm not proposing this as a, I'm proposing this as a kind of hermeneutic, a kind of interpretive principle, not as a practice today. But in the early church, especially um, a couple of canons that got into sort of the canonical law structure of the Eastern church in particular, there were some canons about those who came back from even a war that would be justified. Um, that they would not be able to receive communion for three, three years' time, usually, is how it was. Very different approach to communion reception then, though, right? I mean, you could have almost lifelong um, you know, non-communication because of, because of sins. You also uh, had much less frequent communion. And I don't think we should bring back that practice, but what does it kind of touch in on? Well, we have this idea in the Byzantine Eastern churches, at least, when we pray in the liturgy, we have litanies, like how in the Roman church, you have know, your general mm-hmm. intercessions, right? Yes. We have, we, we have, you know, kind of set litanies that are just part of, you know, the, yes. the beginning of our divine liturgy and then at, right before communion. And in them, we pray for our voluntary and our involuntary sins. And it's, a you know, sort of when you read the theological literature about this and read the history, involuntary just doesn't mean, you know, well... Um, you know, maybe I should have known what I was doing, but I, I did something wrong. Because that would be a sin. It would be a kind of sin by omission uh, from a Roman Catholic perspective. It more is just a, a a prayer to our Lord for all those evils I found myself caught up in. I didn't technically sin in a voluntary way, in a way that my will by omission or commission was tied up in it. But I am just coming to the seat of divine mercy to hand over everything. The evils that I really committed mm-hmm. or committed by omission, and even those, the evils I was mixed up in because the world has, has, has set me amid so many evils and I can't, I, I can't extricate myself from still the, the real evil that exists of the killing of another person justly. Yeah.
1: Right? In, in the Old Testament, they have a, a term for that, shigaga. Mm-hmm. And it lit, literally means the wandering that sheep do and it's Mm -hmm. you wander into inadvertent sin and Mm -hmm. you don't realize always what you're doing but it's still something that is objectively bad but you Mm -hmm. don't intend that bad but you
2: get involved in it yeah and so just having the ability i mean it's, it's an immense amount it's an immense um relief for a christian to be able to to turn not only in confession, but just pastorally to a spiritual director and a spiritual father to turn these things over to the mercy of our Lord. Mm-hmm. You know, we all do this, you know, even I'm sure we've all confessed something where we're sure we did the right thing, but you just look at it and you're on the one hand confessing, if I sinned at all, I'm just handing this all over to you, yes. Lord. But yes. also too, you want to feel that, that, that commission of your heart and soul to God's divine mercy, even for the, all that other stuff that you wandered around mm-hmm. into. Even if I didn't mean to. And you know, on top of it, all the psychological care that kind of we're more sensitive to today is very important. We're much more sensitive in, in our world today to this, mm-hmm. uh, the need for continued, you know, psychiatric and psychological care. But we would be remiss as Catholics if we didn't also see this this huge spiritual need for for addressing that. I mean, that's a that's a wonderful image actually from the Old Testament, these wanderings in which we yeah. find, you know, or involuntary sins. Because, you know, people are marked not merely psychologically, but, you know, in a real depth of their soul by this. And, um, see, and this is something I would encourage
1: those who are veterans. Uh, I'm a big, big fan of things like these therapy dogs and mm-hmm. other uh, activities with fellow veterans that mm-hmm. deal with some of the emotional. That, that's, that's a great thing that needs to be done. But there's also that spiritual element that you can bring that to our Lord. It's not divorced from God. And to bring this to our Lord and let Him also be part of the moral correction where it's needed and the spiritual healing as well as
2: the psychological healing. These are very important elements. And if I may just, I know the professor talks a bit too long. I apologize, but just one little thing to add to that: as Christians, right? You know, it's not just a question of handing this off to you know priests who have served or something, but you know, also as fellow members of the body of Christ, if you if you have served and you yourself have have really achieved a kind of healing in Christ from what you've experienced. I mean, what a beautiful thing you can bring, like Saint Paul says, right? Mm -hmm. With the suffering that you yourself have known. That you too now can help bring a healing to the suffering of others too. I mean, what a beautiful kind of you yes. know, ministry to your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. I'd just like to encourage that because it's something that I can't give in the body of Christ, but as a fellow member of the body of Christ, just like the toe wants to have the finger do things, you know, I, I want other members of the body of Christ to do this because it's mm-hmm. necessary for, the, for the, the life of grace in our, our brothers and sisters. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And uh, I think part of that
1: You know, is shown in that very important line that nobody can understand what I went through in war except another veteran. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe we can't, but we can also show you another level of acceptance and love, and that there needs to be a sense of trusting other folks to show you that acceptance and love, and. For the rest of the members of the body of Christ, not to make this a political statement by which you judge and reject, mm. but rather at, in Christ you welcome this brother or sister who is a veteran of war for some of that healing and also be willing to do what we can for our enemies. One of the terrible, mm. terrible evils of World War One was the unwillingness to forgive the Germans. And Pope Benedict XV had warned the allies to bring reconciliation. And they would not. They wanted punishment. And this is something that was tragic because that punishment led to the impoverishment of Germany, That led to the antagonism that brought on World War II. Hitler found a very fertile bed of anger to to sow his hatred in, and it led to the next war. So we have to do that. I want people to be able to find out more about what you're doing. And okay. uh, and so, if you want to learn more about Father uh, Dr. Minard's work, you can go to philosophicalcatholic.com. dot com, dot com. Because this is not the only area where he helps people think, you know, uh, with good philosophy. But this is one important area among many others. So um, you know. We've run out of time, That's why I want to make sure I get that in there. Thank you very much for being with us. I appreciate it and hope that you are continue to be a blessing to the seminarians when they return back to school. Let me conclude by also giving you a blessing on this feast of St. Elias, the prophet. May Almighty God bless you and keep you and cause His face to shine upon you, the Father, THE SON AND THE HOLY SPIRIT AMEN, Amen. THANK we, YOU Father THANK YOU AND WE CAN BRING YOU DR. MINARD AND ALL THE OTHER GUESTS AND ALL THE OTHER PROGRAMS ONLY BECAUSE THIS NETWORK IS BROUGHT TO YOU BY YOU SO WE ASK YOU TO PLEASE KEEP US IN BETWEEN YOUR GAS BILL YOUR ELECTRIC BILL AND YOUR CABLE BILL And we'll be able to take care of all the bills that we have from covering the upcoming papal visit and other great things that are coming up. Thank you and God bless you for your support.